America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And there are lots of Americans who still consider this nation to be the greatest on earth, despite the fact that our two political parties, not so great. I mean, if you look at basically the polling on this, the number of people who identify as Republicans, which, by the way, has gone up pretty sharply in the recent polls, the Republican Party is still a minority of people, even a minority of people in the party, according to some polls, approve of where it is, where it is going. The same is true of Democrats. We have actually two-thirds of Americans, more than, who now believe we're headed in the wrong direction. Uh, both parties stink, says Matt Bai. Matt Bai is a columnist who I've always enjoyed. Uh, for the Washington Post. He's a uh, journalist, he's an author, and he's a screenwriter. He spent more than a decade at the New York Times, where he was the chief political writer for the Sunday magazine and a columnist for the newspaper. He uh, came out with a column recently that I thought was outstanding, and I'm glad to talk to him about it. He said, I reject both parties' ideas of Americanism, and I'm not the only one. So let me ask you this, Matt. In practical terms, you've for a long time talked about the possibility of an independent or a third-party candidate getting elected as president. Do you think we're ready for that? Um, what a good question to start. It's, it's good to talk. Thank you for having me back, Michael. It's always nice to talk to you. I appreciate the intro. And uh, yeah, I, I do think we're ready for that. I think I think we're only missing one thing, actually, uh, and that's the candidate, which is not a small thing, because I don't believe, uh, you know, to be clear about it, I don't believe we're, we're looking at third party. I think people are tired of parties. I think the culture has moved away from joining and moved away from institutional affiliations. And I, I think what Trump showed is the power of personality, essentially, over over the power of party. And so I, I don't think we'll see a, a new party in America. I think we will eventually, uh, inevitably, see a personality outside the two-party system who will dominate and change that system. Uh, the barriers that have always existed in terms of money, ballot access, party loyalty, they've all been basically obliterated. Um, but, but you do need somebody with a fair amount of uh, name recognition and resources, probably, and something to say. And to this point, um, that person hasn't hasn't stepped forward, and I don't know who it is, but I, but the conditions have never been more hospitable. Well, I, again, I, I I know that I was trying to go through my own mind, thinking about okay, who is it who would have the star power and the charisma, and the desire to possibly run uh, outside the traditional two-party system and get elected as president. And, you know, there's only one likely third-party winner if it came to that, and you know who it is. Tell me. I'd love it's to know. Don it's Donald Trump. And it's one of the reasons <laughs> that so many yeah, anti-Trump anti Republicans like me um, are so terribly worried about this this next big election. Because I think it's possible that... A, Trump would not win at this point in his career. He would not necessarily win the Republican nomination. And if it looks like he would have a serious challenge for the Republican nomination, uh, he could probably make 
more money and gain more support if he just uh, had the America First Party. And and you can see it. It's it's something else new that he could announce that would make clear that the whole purpose of the endeavor was to promote him personally rather than a bunch of the rhinos that he uh, he has contempt for. That's a great point, Michael. I mean, I, I could see, not only could I see that scenario, I could also see him running, you know, what we sort of call a sour grapes campaign, right, losing a Republican primary, or, or at least, you know, looking like he's losing a Republican primary, which I don't rule out, uh, because he's never faced a binary choice or anything like it with the Republican electorate, and deciding to, to go as an independent anyway, just to keep the the brand alive and create as much havoc as possible would almost certainly lead to a, a Democratic win, I think. But, uh, but you know, it would be interesting in your scenario if he runs an independent, does that draw other independents? You know, is there an Oprah-type figure out there or a Mark Cuban or somebody who says, well, if he's going to go, I'm going to go. Right? I, I just think, I think somebody, what, what, what Trump showed us, and actually President Obama to an extent before him, was that you could commandeer a party uh, successfully with the power of personality, that the party regulars didn't decide anymore who people would vote for. I think the next iteration of our political change, which is happening quickly, even though it feels to us like it's not, is that uh, someone will show the, the, the ability of an independent to transcend the party system. And once that happens, um, it will be impossible to stop. I think it will be, it will be an invitation to a, to a whole lot of people to get involved and a different kind of political process that I can't really predict. Well, what, where, how would an independent transcend the two-party system? I mean, I know Andrew Yang is trying to do that with his forward party. That's probably not the answer. Right. Um, but it, it just seems to me that uh, most independents who have gotten elected on the statewide level are, are well, like Joe Lieberman for his last term in the Senate. Mm -hmm. was elected mm -hmm. as an independent. Remember, Jesse Ventura was an independent governor of Minnesota, and that didn't work out particularly well at all. Uh, where have we seen this as a viable model in recent American politics? I spent a lot of time with, with Jesse Ventura, actually. Uh, it, was a, it was a complicated four years, but it, it was very formative in my thinking about this. I, I mean, on the presidential, on the national level, we've seen it I think the most um, the most uh, impressive foray we've seen, and it's before a lot of the times of people now looking at politics, was Ross Perot, right, in, in uh, 1992, who, who uh, helped probably helped Clinton get elected. But Perot did what, 18 percent of the vote? I think his first time out, which was he did staggering. He did that, at that time, quite staggering for a, uh, an independent an independent candidate. No one no one had heard of really before then. He had a lot of money. Now the money is actually less important, and I think the system is actually more uh, hospitable. I think I think what, the, the blueprint isn't really hard to see in my mind. You take a celebrity candidate um, uh, or somebody with a lot of resources, a good story to tell. You wait out the primary process, which is a process through which both parties' nominees are uh, inevitably beaten down and discredited and, and wear themselves out way too much in the minds of the electorate. So that by the time they're done, people have all kinds of doubts about them. And then you, you jump in late. Uh, what you need, the ballot access laws are, are difficult because they're state by state. They're designed to be difficult. But, you know, with enough money and organization uh, in advance of the campaign, 
you can certainly, uh, you know, thanks to the Internet, more than ever, you can certainly organize a campaign to get on those ballots, and you can certainly get into the debate uh, if you're polling at, a, at, a, at an even, you know, modestly impressive level. So I, I would say, you know, if somebody came to me and said, hey, is this doable? I would say, yeah, it's really doable. Plan for it, spend some money, do some organizing, and, and get in late. I think that's the plan. Okay, there's another plan, and I, I hope we can uh, spend a few more moments and talk about it, which is uh, the Republican... And on the Michael Medved Show, my pleasure to be speaking again to uh, Matt By, nationally syndicated columnist through the uh, Washington Post. He uh, has written a... a terrific column that I think is worth everyone reading. It's going to offend everyone. If you're a committed Republican, a committed uh, Democrat, uh, you won't like this because he has harsh words for both parties right now. And uh, the, the question, Matt, really becomes usually when there have been very, very polarized situations where both parties uh, seem unable to work on what uh, Arthur Schlesinger called the vital center, basically to actually concentrate on actually getting things done for the American people. They're too busy trying to destroy one another. A lot of that has had to do with, like, profound differences on on issues. But that's not really the case with this crisis, is it? Well, there are, I would say there are profound differences on the issues, Michael, but, but you're, what you're getting at, I think you're right, is that the, the more profound divide here is almost cultural, demographic. Uh, it's, 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 it's really about, um, you know, our version of America. I mean, there, there, there's a, we have in America more than ever before, I would say, a common, almost a, a common culture, a commonality of media, of um of stores and products and and design and you know one city to the other as you know when you travel around America every place in America more or less looks like every place else which wasn't the case 50 years ago and certainly not 100 years ago um, and yet I think because of that there is this battle for whose interpretation of the culture whose interpretation of Americanness will prevail uh, it's, it's no longer a country of regions it's one entire uh, country under a single federal government and for, for that reason uh, I think the stakes of who controls that is very high uh, and so uh, you know and so I guess counterintuitively even though we share so much more than we used to in our daily experiences we, 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 we've broken off into tribes uh, that consume different media that, uh, that have different values that look to different icons uh, and, uh, you know, as many people have pointed out, it essentially creates a, a duality uh, in the country that is probably cultural before it, it has to do with the issues and, and results in really every two years uh, sort of death struggle for who's going to control Congress and every four years who's going to control the White House. And it seems to come down to a very small number of votes. talk about 
Okay, what do you say, Matt Bayh, to of religion, which uh, Republicans who point out that uh, just today the uh, uh, Gallup organization of faith for says the that 47% of Americans way, call the themselves Republicans, very while only 42% say they're Democrats. And by and the way, the religion is the church uh, one England, year ago, it was the, the other direction. One uh, year ago, only 40%... Uh, said is, Republican, 49% uh, said Democrats. So, and of course, the government supports the Church of England. And it's part of the uh, government. Nine points that. of identification, while the Republicans have gained seven points of identification. Why? Because there isn't one established religion. We have a free market, and free market works. Uh, Justice Sotomayor said. Um, the majority elevates one individual's interest in personal religious exercise in the exact time and place of that individual's choosing over society's interest in protecting the separation between church and state, eroding the protections for religious liberty for all, she wrote, joined by Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, the so-called liberal bloc. Justice Sotomayor called the majority opinion particularly misguided because it elevates the religious rights of a school official who voluntarily accepted public employment and limits that public employment entails over those of his students who are required to attend school and who, who this court has long recognized are particularly vulnerable and deserving of protection. The uh, school officials in Bremerton had uh, argued that uh, Coach Kennedy commandeered the government-owned field to promote his faith to fans and students after the game, implicitly putting the district's imprimatur on his brand of Christianity. And the Wall Street Journal writes that Mr. Kennedy, a Marine Corps veteran who himself attended Bremerton High, said his midfield devotions were inspired by an evangelical movie about a football coach at a religious school who turns around a losing team by stressing, stressing faith in God. By the way, it's a pretty good movie. It's called Facing the Giants, is the one that uh, he's talking about here. They don't name it in the Wall Street Journal, but that's the film. He said his uh, personal expressions of thanksgiving harmed no one, and that he treated players uh, fairly, whether they joined him in prayer or not. And in fact, when he found out that there were two players who... Uh, specifically did not want to pray with him and told him they were atheists, he made them co-captains of, of the team, as you heard from his attorney. The, um, according to court papers, here is the, the kind of prayer that uh, Coach Kennedy would recite after games, and usually it lasted less than a minute. But I know this may be very, very upsetting for some of you, so if you want to put some cotton in your ears or somehow protect your, yourself if you have any snowflakey tendencies. According to past uh, court papers, Mr. Kennedy would recite prayers such as, Lord, I lift these guys up for what they just did on the field. <laughs> they battled for 48 minutes, and even though they came here as rivals, they can leave here as friends. It doesn't matter what our beliefs are. We believe in our team, and we believe in each other. Okay, what's amazing to me is when something is as wholesome and reasonable after a high school football game as that, 
is it really worth it to go through, I mean, the American Civil Liberties Union, of course, was involved with this entire thing, and they had various other people who came in and aided the school and the school district in their fight against exposing uh, young children, maybe accidentally, who would come up and hear the prayers or see the prayers. They would be exposed to those dangerous, dangerous messages. I mean, come on. Again, I think what Justice Gorsuch said in his decision is exactly right. One of the things we have to do in this country, and it has to do with the abortion issue too, which is so much on everybody's mind, and we'll get to that. But one of the things we have to do is to <laughs> just give a little bit more space to other people who might not have the same beliefs that we do. It's uh, like my, my piece in Newsweek over the weekend is about that whole idea of judging other people favorably. Uh, no, this is Coach Kennedy was not doing these prayers because he wanted to convert all of these uh, players into religious fanatics. He's actually trying to lift their spirits and it seems to me like a good thing. So what about the argument about abortion? If you don't like abortion, don't have one? Does that make sense? We'll get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. With the uh, Michael Medved Show, it is uh, Monday, the 27th of June, just want to make that clear, and uh, it's um, uh, Eastern Time, we're at uh, 3.33 p.m. Western Time, 12.33 p.m. Okay, why am I doing this? Because uh, I was just informed <laughs> one of the most frustrating things uh, that can happen with a talk show host is the very beginning of the show, which I thought was a particularly wonderful beginning, and I was happy with it. Uh, the very beginning of the show, uh, we had um, had to play tape because there was some kind of technical difficulty. And uh, apparently they played a, an hour from the past that I liked a lot too, so okay. Uh, and by the way, if you have any questions about something that came up in that hour or comments about it, you can call. 1-800-955-1776, and you will be on the air live, as I am now. And uh, apparently what you didn't hear, at least this is what I'm informed about, is why I am particularly excited about this week. And uh, it, it's uh, because it's not, it's not so much that Republicans are winning over the all over the country, and uh, they really are. It's because the Democrats, especially with some of this hysteria that they're trying to promulgate and to encourage out there about uh, Roe v. Wade and, and what the decision in the Dobbs case really means and what it's really about, and we'll get to all of that, but there are two articles and one of them is at the Associated Press, and one of them is by Michael Scherer over at the Washington Post. So both liberal sources, and the two articles are talking about tremendous strides being made by the Republican Party, particularly in registering new voters. 
And the AP story about that says it's over a million, that two-thirds of all the changes in registration that have been made or new voters who have been picked up, two-thirds of it, Republican. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to win every race, but it means that the trend is not so much pro-Republican as it is against Democrats and against some of the extreme positions of the Democratic Party and some of the uh, uh, difficulties the Biden administration has had with that incredibly low approval rating that the president has. And uh, the registration is changing to Republicans. And then there's another piece in the Washington Post by Michael Scherer, and it's called, and we'll get to that, it's called uh, Conservatives on the March. And it's basically about the 30 states, count them, 30 states, where the state government is totally controlled by Republicans, both houses of the legislature, Republican governor. And a lot of those states have been, uh, and, and it's not just on abortion, though that too, but a lot of those states have been moving toward school choice. They have been moving toward trying to make sure, and this is a very big thing for Governor DeSantis in Florida, make sure that uh, the what is talked about concerning sex and gender in uh, the classroom is age-appropriate. It's not don't say gay. It's uh, You don't have to describe mechanics, for instance, to five-year-olds. Uh, I mean, it's just not necessary. So we're going to be dealing with that as well. And uh, And then we have the... Very good news of a very good guy, uh, Joe Kennedy of Bremerton, Washington, football coach, who just won a great, big, juicy, wonderful, encouraging Supreme Court case that was handed down this morning. And uh, I, I wanted to to do this because I thought it was so useful, is going back to the last big Supreme Court case about abortion. That case was called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And the, uh, the, the case was uh, an effort to try to at, at least create more room for limitations on later stage abortions. In other words, right now, there's actually been big progress that's been made on that. 95% of all abortions that are performed in the United States are performed in the first 15 weeks. But imposing uh, that limit on states, well, that was ruled out in Casey. And Justice Scalia had a dissent from Casey. It's in June of 29th, 1992. So it's before Bill Clinton was elected president. And Justice Scalia wrote, there is a poignant aspect to today's opinion. Its length and what might be called its epic tone suggest that its authors believe they are bringing to an end a troublesome era in the history of our nation and of our court. It is the dimension of authority, they say, to uh, call the contending sides of national controversy to end their national division by accepting a common mandate rooted in the Constitution. And that common mandate was, uh, okay, uh, you can uh, have an abortion and the government is not allowed to put an undue burden on someone who is seeking an abortion. 
Quite to the contrary, says uh, Justice Scalia, by foreclosing all democratic outlet for the deep passions that this issue arouses, by banishing the issue from the political forum that gives all participants, even the losers, the satisfaction of a fair hearing and an honest fight, by continuing the imposition of a rigid national rule instead of allowing for regional differences, the court merely prolongs and intensifies the anguish. We should get out of this area where we have no right to be and where we do neither ourselves nor the country any good by remaining. He also quotes the most important chief justice in the history of the country, who was John Marshall. He was not the first chief justice, some people believe. He's actually the third. But John Marshall at, at one point said, it is our job uh, not to say what the law is, not what the law should be. And on that basis, the idea of saying what the law is in terms of uh, permitting uh, abortion nationwide in every single state, regardless of what the state legislatures have done, regardless of what the Congress has done, saying that this is uh, something that somehow we are discerning uh, through, what, extrasensory perception? It's, it's basically, they use this term in the Griswold case, uh, Justice Douglas does in terms of his majority opinion, the Griswold case, which preceded Roe by eight years, uh, basically said, we are basing the case on an emanation of a penumbra. Okay, and if you're not familiar with the language, it's really there. You can see it in the decision. We are basing this on an emanation of a penumbra. Penumbra is a shadow, and an emanation is just something that kind of comes out of the shadow, and you have sort of a hint. And, and again, I understand there are decent people and all kinds of decent people who agree with the Supreme Court of 1973 that it would help the country if uh, abortion were legalized everywhere. But if you're going to do that and you're going to then contradict and you're going to jump over what every single legislature has determined, what the Congress of the United States has determined, what all of elected government has determined, and you are going to base that upon your higher authority, it better damn well have a very clear clause that gives you that power. Otherwise, you're arrogating power to nine people. In the case of Roe v. Wade, it was seven people who voted with it. You're arrogating power to seven people who are accountable to no one and who were never elected. It's not a way to make crucial decisions for a new policy for a country or even for a state. We will be right back on The MedVet Show. Michael Medved show uh, one of the things that uh, I think is most misleading and you hear it all the time in in terms of uh, 
news media, and just the the general commentary that I know you have been in, involved with. By the way, if if you've had a situation where you've had to correct somebody and help them understand what is actually going on, and if you listen to this show, I. I, I know that you have a better understanding than the average American of what the legalities are and what the realities are of the uh, situation with legalized abortion. The The idea that uh, now the Supreme Court has made a declaration that abortion is going to be illegal everywhere, uh, <laughs> that's not true. And in fact, there isn't a single scrap, not not one inch, one square inch of territory in the United States where the Supreme Court has decided that abortion is now illegal. What the Supreme Court has done is to allow this to go back to the states for each state to make its own decision. And some of the states that are moving most rapidly and decisively on making decisions are some of the most pro-abortion states in the country. For instance, California state lawmakers are expected as soon as today to put a state constitutional amendment on the ballot that would explicitly protect what they call reproductive rights. Just a little bit of a note here. I don't know if there's anybody out there who shares this? I'm tired of this phrase, reproductive rights. I, really, it's it's uh, the the idea is yes, we all have a right to reproduce. And by the way, courts have found that, uh, for instance, forced sterilizations on people uh, not appropriate, can't do it. And uh, the idea of reproduction reproduction means making babies. Abortion is not about making babies. I'm sorry, it's it's about I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, it's about terminating babies. It's about removing them. It is not a reproductive right. And I know they say, well, they are reproductive rights because we're talking about uh, basically giving people the chance to plan their own families. And And by the way, if you talk about reproductive rights, okay, you can apply that, I think, to birth control. But the fascinating point about this is the best way to reduce the number of abortions, and abortions have been going down in America every year for 20 years. And the actual number, not just the rate of abortions, the actual number of abortions, it stopped a little bit during the pandemic where the uh, abortion rate stopped going down. It was kind of frozen, like everything was frozen during the pandemic. But for at least 20 years before that, every year, fewer and fewer abortions. Why? Because people were figuring out how to use birth control. And nothing, nothing in this decision, uh, as written by Justice Alito, one of the things that he changed between the original draft of the decision that was leaked shamelessly and scandalously and the final draft of the decision, which is now the law of the land, thank you very much, is to specifically put in there that on issues like contraception, on issues like interracial marriage, on issues like same-sex marriage, that nothing in this decision is meant to cast aspersions or cast doubts, whatever Justice Thomas says, 
this is the decision that was basically backed by all six, including Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, of the justices who voted to try to get the Supreme Court out of the abortion business and to leave this up to the states. And, and really, it is a state matter. And the amendment in California, which would go to California voters in November for approval, comes as states across the country react to the sweeping Supreme Court decision ending long-standing abortion protections. Governor Gavin Newsom of California has vowed to fight like hell. Hell, interesting invocation there. To sustain abortion rights in the state. In the past year, Mr. Newsom has ramped up funding for abortion providers. He's offered tax breaks for companies seeking to move from states where abortion may be outlawed. And he has signed bills to protect abortion patients from uh, privacy intrusions, insurance co-pays, and threats. Now, the insurance co-pays I wonder about. You know, we, we go to the doctor, we have co-pays. I'm not talking about no abortion. But we have co-pays for an examination. And it can be some money. So you want this one medical procedure is, is so beautiful and so sanctified and, and, and so much favored by the governor of California that he wants to exempt abortion from co-pays of any kind? Isn't that very much like uh, directly funding those abortions? Because someone's paying. Uh, on Friday, he signed a bill to shield California abortion providers from liability of prosecution related to out-of-state bans on abortions. He also announced an agreement with Governor Kate Brown of Oregon and Governor Jay Inslee of Washington to establish a West Coast abortion firewall that would protect providers and uh, patients from the legal reach of other states. Uh, pending bills would authorize experienced nurse practitioners to perform first trimester abortions without a physician's supervision and create a state-administered fund to help underwrite uh, travel expenses for the many women from abortion-banned states expected to uh, come to California for an abortion. A state-administered fund? Now, who's going to Go to that fund to, to pay for people to come from Arizona, say, which may have a more restrictive abortion law. Uh, in other words, the idea that we have gone from what Bill Clinton said, and he said it in his acceptance speech in 1992 when he was running for president the first time. He said he wanted to see a day when abortion in America was safe, legal, and rare. So if you want it to be rare, why are you basically paying for people to get a, uh, an expense-paid trip to California so they can get an abortion? I mean, really, is, is, is this moderate? Is this sensible? Is this up the middle? A poll last year by uh, the Public Policy Institute of California found that roughly four out of five Californians... Uh, oppose the repeal of Roe v. Wade. Again, I think that's because they don't understand everything about Roe v. Wade, but uh, there's no doubt. I'm sure there is a majority of people in California who could be safely described as pro-abortion. 
So everything that he's doing, that he's talking about doing, is perfectly constitutional. The Supreme Court's not going to interfere with him. But after the Supreme Court leaks uh, in May, the state's legislative leaders moved to make certain that abortion and contraception are explicitly protected. A similar constitutional amendment will go to Vermont voters in the fall, ensuring personal reproductive, there's that word again, liberty. The Senate in California has already passed the amendment with a supermajority approval, and it needs to receive at least two-thirds support in the Assembly by this week to be placed on the ballot in November. The amendment does not require Mr. Newsom's signature to reach the ballot, but he enthusiastically supports it. Um, okay, what this is going to do is mean that in the state of California, at least, uh, abortion is going to be a big issue if they have on the ballot basically the state being very supportive of uh, the, the right to abortion. And and by the way, if they did nothing, if they passed nothing, the Supreme Court decision would have no impact at all on California because its existing laws are uh, extremely forgiving and permissive regarding abortion. And in fact... I believe that what this will do will make abortion more available, not less. And this is part of the idiocy that is going around in this country where people are focused on there are literally hundreds of millions, tens of millions. There are so many women who are, who are oppressed, and except in some of our biggest states like New York and California and Massachusetts and New Jersey and a bunch of other Democratic-controlled states, and I'm sorry it's so partisan, they are trying to expand the right to abortion to go into the late stages of abortion, where it has been legally and Supreme Court approved banned for many years. We can do better on this issue and so many more in this greatest nation on God's green earth.